0: week of March 5th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 610, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And
1: driving down the Pacific Coast Highway in my powerful Mach 5, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, oh no, I'm Speed Racer.
0: Oh. Why are you Speed Racer? What happened now at Speed Racer? <laughs> I know it's Speed Racer, for those of you who don't know, is an animated television show from Japan.
1: Yeah, Whatever. yeah, yeah. So uh, this week is the ep- for the week ending March 5th, and I accidentally wrote Mach 5. I dropped the R, and I said Mach 5. I'm like, oh, Speed Racer. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> wow. That's a long way to go. <laughs> it ain't that far. It was just a typo, just a typo. Uh, by the way, correction right up front. Uh, last week, I posted it. You really should follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I posted the fact that I screwed up last week right as the show ended. I looked it up. I was like, oh, I made a mistake. I... I depended on somebody else's claim, and I shouldn't have done that, obviously. They talked about the award season and the Oscars, and they said that, and I'm blaming it on them, but I should blame myself, because you should look up things as a fact checker before you say them. And they claimed that the films Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and All Quiet on the Western Front both had a lot of Oscar nominations, true. They were both nominated for Best Picture, true. And that was the only category in which they went head to head, almost true. like. You know, All Quiet is not nominated for Best Director. All Quiet has no acting nominations. And the technical awards that they're both up for are very different except for one. They also go head-to-head on Best Score. So both films are nominated for Best Score. Either one could win, too. I don't know if it's not John Williams. And then, until we get to Best Picture, that's it. So they could both win everything else, and we'd really have no clue who had momentum and who was ahead. So it's just a fun factoid about Oscar night that those two movies with... Practically the most nominations only overlap in two categories, best score and best film. So you could find at the beginning of the night, which one wins best score. And then you could see them both rack up points until we get to best picture. So it is Oscar week, Sperling. Who's going to win best picture? Just tell me the movie.
0: I think it's going to be everything everywhere. I, I just think it's, uh-huh. it's kind of like, it, it's, it's it inevitable, seems like, like Brokeback yeah.
1: Mountain, like Saving Private Ryan. No, that one. No, that was to uh, uh, to uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love. Like so many Correct. other movies that were inevitable, of course they're going to win until they don't.
0: I see- Well, the only thing, the, as far as best picture goes, the only reason I can, I can't say that with confidence is because of the way they do the whole like stacked ranking thing no actually you couldn't couldn't
1: say it with confidence even before that because some of those famous upsets like i mentioned happened before the preferential ranked ballot you never know until they announce the winner you think oh it's clear it's obvious but you just i know
0: know the funny thing uh, it would have been funnier if i said can i tell you next monday
1: (laughs) yeah there you go that would have been funnier i say it won't be everything everywhere all at once because i would be pleased if it won and therefore oscar will frustrate me
0: so Well um, the only other the only other thing it could be is uh, all quiet. No, right? no, it could think?
1: be the Banshees of Inishir and we've got a ton. Oh good good point. Yeah. A ton good of good nominations point. and all the, really the ones you would expect really. A lot of acting nominations. It could it could win a supporting acting nod if it's not Angela Bassett, if it's not Jamie Lee Curtis, it could be Carrie Condon. Barry Keegan is supporting actors, terrific. They've had a lot of success in the in the award mm-hmm. season, though not with the guilds. Do, do you such. think
0: that Tom Tom Cruise's uh, Top Gun. He seems to be like the producer running out there. I guess he is the producer. He is the producer, yeah. Uh, He could could win. It could win. Yeah, it just, just as a like, thank you for bringing us back.
1: But no, just because they love the movie. People love the movie. You know, you want to talk about the old people, older people going, everything's a little too weird. They like this performance. They like Michelle Yao, but it was too weird for them. Uh, other people like, I'm not voting for All Quiet because I don't. Li- it didn't do well in the book or I don't care. It's a foreign film. I want to support Hollywood. You want to support Hollywood? The second, the really movie a lot of people really liked, especially older male Academy voters, which is the majority of the group, I believe. That would be top. Gun. So you can, you know, once it happens, as Ann Thompson says, uh, it always, it's always obvious after the w- votes are in. But I think uh, maybe it'll be a crazy upset of All Quiet just because that would annoy me the most. So there you go. Tar. That's no, I think All Quiet would annoy me more because of what it did to the book. Tar, I can respect. I don't really like it. It's not on my best of the year list, but it's certainly a well made film made with care and, and passion. So it doesn't make me angry. I just have issues.
0: I always well, have tune issues. in next week to f- find out who won. I don't best know picture at the Academy. Awards. I don't know where I'm going to be in New York and I don't
1: know where I am going to record the show. That's going to be tricky, um, but maybe it'll just be you and Ab Thompson. You know, if I fall apart, but hopefully not, I'll do my best. And I can't wait to hear what we talk
0: about next week. But what are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on showbiz sandbox, we are sitting in the good seats. Ah, AMC's Adam Aaron nice. doubled down on premium seat prices. And even The New York Times is weighing in. Of course, uh, Aaron is the CEO of AMC. But does Aaron have a point? No one's giving AMC an award for raising prices, but they are giving prizes to everything, everywhere, all at once, as we just mentioned. It dominated the Spirit Awards. Will it dominate the Oscars? And do streaming numbers give us a clue to the winner? On Inside Baseball, we'll take a look at the Writers Guild of America. They're gearing up for negotiations, and now we know the most important issues they will focus on when they meet with the studios. Prepare for a strike. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on the last week's box office. I hate when people
1: tease something. And don't tell you the T's and keep you waiting just to taunt you. I generally try and interject a little quick comment. Uh, it's not important, but you said, uh, gee, will the streaming numbers give us, a, you know, tell us who's going to win best picture? Uh, the answer is no. For obvious reasons, though, people are talking about it. It's like, well, some movies are still in theaters. But anyway, we'll get to that. I didn't mean to taunt, lead that out like, ooh, uh, turn in in five minutes for the food that may save your life. Like, really? Tell me now before the break. (laughs) But anyway, we are looking at the box office around the world for the week ending March 5th, the week before I head to New York City. Very excited. By the way, Broadway tickets, very expensive when you don't get them for free. Very, very. I'm like, I want to see that show. No, no, I don't. I don't want to see that show. Oh, my God. Anyway, I can afford to go to the movies, even in Manhattan, at the number one movie around the world with a knockout punch is Creed 3 with $100 million on its opening week. They said it was a historic opening weekend. I'm not quite sure why. It's the biggest in the franchise. Historic
0: for a sports movie. The highest opening of any sports movie to which I'm like... Are we really getting that? An animated film made for
1: adults on a weekend. You know, yes, exactly.
0: Edited by a woman. A live action musical
1: about children. Yeah. So Creed 3 had a good opening, $100 million worldwide. It cost $75 million to make. Not the best reviews, But it's a pretty review-proof franchise, even though it's had pretty good reviews over the years. At number two, also not getting good reviews, is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We still love you, Paul Rudd. It made $56 million worldwide. It's at $420 million and counting. You can see the box office lights have been turned on. It's March, but movies are making money. Keep the movies coming, and the audiences will be there as well. At number three, for example, is Demon Slayer. Kimetsu no Aiba to the swordsmith. This is the latest in a Demon Slayer franchise. It's mangas. It's a TV series. We had an original film called The Mugen Train that came out, and that was the biggest hit of 2022. That was an original film. It was like... The season finale to the first season of the TV series, you had to go to the movie theaters to see it. It would be as if they took the last two episodes of Game of Thrones and said, "You know, you can the only place you can see it is the movie theater." Mugen Train made half a billion dollars worldwide. It was the top-grossing movie of 2022. It was sort of a fluke for a lot of reasons, but was also a very triumphant culmination of this franchise. Now we have a new season of the TV series, and what we have here is To the Swordsmith, which just repurposes the last two episodes of the previous season, and the first episode of the new season. I think maybe that season hasn't debuted yet, but don't hold me to it. In any way, it's all stuff you'll be able to see on TV pretty soon, but it's playing in theaters. It made $30 million this week. It's at $54 million in counting. It will come Nowhere near Mugen Train, but since they didn't really spend any money on it, that wasn't spent already for the TV series. That's a win. <laughs> is that complicated? It's a TV show playing in movie theaters. At number four is Cocaine Bear, everybody's favorite. Uh, I don't know, Weekend at Fire Island. No, no, no. Twenty-four million dollars this week. It costs fifty-two million. It's made, I should say, fifty-two million dollars. Also uh, doing well this week is. Jesus Revolution starring Kelsey Grammer Hippies for Jesus in California back in the day it's a period flick it made another 16 million dollars it's at 31 million dollars and counting that's going to be a success story Cocaine Bear is going to be a success story Demon Slayer is a success story Creed 3 is going to be a success story it will certainly get to 225 million dollars which triples its budget Ant-Man and the Wasp is the only question mark so far that's over 400 million it needs to get to 600 million dollars and counting but that's a lot of success. And here's another one. Avatar, the way of water that made another 15 million dollars. It's the third biggest film of all time. It's at two billion, 282 million uh, dollars, just ahead by 35 million dollars of Titanic, which is also in theaters and made about four million dollars. Then we have some Chinese films. Full River Red made another $13 million. That's at $663 million in counting. Uh, the Wandering Earth is making money. That's about to hit $600 million. And is there any other Chinese film? No, that's about it. But there is a Korean film worth talking about. It's Cyber Heist. It's a thriller about... He's not really a hacker. He's like a government agent who develops on his own time a virus and pay walls to protect people and there's this big cyber attack and then he does his own fight back but then a virus gets out it's very thrilling with people typing away on keyboards but of course he's a very good looking hacker and so that Hong Kong thriller has opened up in China and it's made 6 million dollars. The interesting thing as Variety point out is that last week another Hong Kong film called A Guilty Conscience had topped the charts. That movie also made 6 million dollars this week. It's at 31 million dollars and counting. That's two Two weeks in a row where a new Hong Kong film has topped the box office in China. What's interesting here is that's happening for Hong Kong films in China, but Chinese films are struggling to gain any traction in Hong Kong. You can draw your own political, socio-cultural conclusions from that. Scrolling down the list, a lot of movies are making four, five, three million dollars. Um, Operation Fortune, Guerre, that Guy Ritchie film has been playing all overseas, made money and a name and deals without having a US distribution deal in place, but then it finally got one. Now it's opened up and made $4 million worldwide this week. It's at $34 million and counting. The reviews are sort of all over the place. It's another dumb Guy Ritchie film, or it's another great Guy Ritchie film. I guess it depends on if you like Guy Ritchie. And Bo also in Korea, a concert film. I'm Hero, the final. Probably not the best translation, but it's a concert film starring the singer Lim Young Woon, and it made about two point five million dollars uh, worldwide, basically all in China. So that's interesting. And no matter where you are in the world, you want to get to see the best seats for the best movies. But how easy is that to do? AMC head Adam Aaron keeps weighing in on this issue and he's doubling down on why they're raising ticket prices. My favorite argument he made is, well, we're raising those ticket prices in the best seats so we don't have to raise the ticket prices for everybody. Because normally we would just have everybody pay the same. So now we're just charging more for the good seats so that the people on the sides and the back don't have to pay it. It's like, we're raising prices so we don't have to raise prices. Huh? (laughs)
0: Well, he's saying we're raising prices. We're only raising prices on 30% of the seats Mm -hmm. in the auditorium. I get what he's trying to do. He didn't want to get dinged for raising prices, which, by the way, nobody would have said anything about because it would have happened organically. All at once, or in one particular theater, and he could have done a theater by theater over a, an extended period of time. Well, what, nobody you, what, what would are have you really... saying? He
1: would, could have tricked people, and they wouldn't know what whether all ticket prices went up or oh, whether no, the, the premium that, seating, yeah,
0: the, the ticket pr- that they were raising ticket prices, they could have for done it premium in, seating. Of course, everybody no, 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 would just notice
1: for if, every seat. Well, look, I think everybody would notice that as well. They wouldn't go theater by theater first of all.
0: It wouldn't be headline news. Yes, it would.
1: If they raised ticket prices a dollar above everybody else, that would be headline news. You would report about it. I would report about it. The trades would talk about it. Of course they would. Why not? Why wouldn't that be news? Well, they've raised...
0: they raised prices after the pandemic, nobody said anything. Yes, we did. They raised ticket prices we talked about it. 25 Twenty five. We
1: talked about it. When they raised prices on Friday and Saturday night for a more expensive new movie, we talk about it. When they lower prices for 80 for Brady, we talk about it. We talk about prices all the time. I think it's a very big news story. There's no way they would be able to sneak that through and nobody would notice or care. People care. What I love is his quote about why he's doing it.
0: He says, I'm looking at heat maps what seats are booked for a particular movie and nobody sits in row one. It could be opening night for Star Wars. Rows three to 18 are booked solid. Row one empty. There is a possibility here that by discounting the price up front, we may be able to expand the movie-going market to more price-sensitive consumers. Oh, my God. The solution is to rip
1: out those seats. They should not be sold. They're terrible. I've sat in them once or twice, and then you never do it again. You're leaning back, your neck hurts, and you can't really see the movie. They should never have been placed in the theater any more than you should put a seat behind a pole. It's like, no. (laughs) If you can't see the theater, you shouldn't have that seat in the theater. When you go to those lovely little, you know, Deluxe seats with the big armchairs They've always got like a row down in front, which nobody sits at because they're horrible. So like, no, don't have crappy seats. You know, that's the solution to that. And of course, he compares it to concerts and airline tickets. As you've said many times, concerts are one-time events and they sell out. And basically, even if it's a two or three night stand, it's over. That that live performance is gone. The next night, there may be some different songs. He may not be there. He may be sick. He moves on to a new town. Planes often travel nowadays with most of their seats taken. So, you know, what percentage i like to know if his seats are filled in a week. He's well, I'm looking at these great seats. You know, yeah. Guess what? You've got empty theaters for most of the week, right? What's the weekly capacity, you know, and filled seats on a movie theater screen? You know, Tuesday at five o'clock, Wednesday at two. The gen- The general rule
0: is that... Eighty five percent of movie seats go unsold. Right. Right.
1: So the answer is not to raise prices for the only seats you're selling. And basically, right. yes, you're always more popular Friday and Saturday night. Charging more for new movies that cost more. I hate it. I don't like it. But at least everybody well, and, you might,
0: and you might be wondering, why are we talking about an American movie theater? Here's the reality. Well, that American the- movie theater chain it owns one of the largest chains in Europe. And if they can get away with it. Well, they already do charge
1: more in Europe for some seats, don't they? That's what they argue. They're like, look, variable pricing is no big deal. Variety says, look at the variable pricing. But these are by movies. They say, look at the variable pricing in Korea. The crime drama, The Devil's Deal, which made about $4 million this week, it had noticeably cheaper tickets. It was selling more seats and topped the charts because they ranked their movies by tickets sold rather than gross. So The Devil's Deal was charging an average of $7.78. Now, the concert film that we talked about, I'm Hero, uh, that movie averaged... $18.75 because it was more like a Fathom event, one-time thing, though it wasn't a live performance as such. You know, it was a special event. And so they were charging $18. If you go into New York to see an IMAX movie in 3D, you're going to pay $25, $28. But what, what I say is, Everybody in the theater is paying the same price. If I choose to go see an IMAX 3D movie, I'm not in the back corner knowing some jerk got a good seat because he was willing to pay an extra 10 bucks. I'm going to resent that person. Imagine a theater where like all the outer seats are filled and there's some, you know, the Monopoly board character Mr. Moneybags is sitting in that center row by himself laughing and eating popcorn because he doesn't mind paying 30 bucks for a seat. That's what I say. And, and the New York Times, they talk about this. They'd say, look, Saturday evening at AMC Lincoln Square, you can see Creed 3 on multiple, three types of IMAX screenings with a 7 to $11 surcharge depending on your seat location. So you're already paying more. You know why? Because you actually shouldn't see an IMAX theater unless you're centered in your seat because otherwise it's not good. Three screenings with Dolby audio and visual technology and reclining chairs. You pay eight to $12 more and two standard screenings of Creed three for $18 for a regular adult ticket.
0: Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You know what people are uh, in that particular article, Brooks Barnes, who wrote that article points out that some consumers are saying, look, it's just getting too confusing. I just, how much do I like, what what do I pay? And, but I will say, uh, in well, whether it's AMC's or in the defense of this practice, nobody cares when they go buy an airline ticket. They're, they're not saying, "Well, how we much hate is it? it? Is it eleven dollars?" We hate
1: it. We hate it. What are you talking about? We're furious. People hate buying airline tickets and hate buying concert tickets. I hate buying no, a they, ticket. But I got to complain f- about. I've got to pay.
0: A they don't feed. complain. To-
1: I'm sorry, I have to pay a fee for bringing my suitcase, or I have to pay a fee if my seat has room on it, or I have to pay a fee for a better seat, even in the same section. It's infuriating.
0: Yeah, and actually, there is a movement uh, to legislate and regulate that saying, look, you've got to tell people, how much is the darn ticket? Kind of like these uh, resort fees that hotels charge. They're like, no, our hotel room only costs $100 a month or $100 a night plus the $300 resort fee that we are charging you. So really the room costs
1: $400 a night. And how do theaters make, how do exhibitors make most of their money? Where does most of their revenue come from? Is it ticket prices? Concessions, popcorn, soda, uh, nachos, all that stuff. Well, guess what? I would say, well, gee, you charge too much for concessions. You're giving me a boatload of popcorn that I don't want and charging me like more than my ticket to buy a popcorn and a soda unless I order the kitty bag, which is what I do at AMC. i go, can I have the kitty bag? And you can keep the box and the little chewables. I just want my little tiny popcorn and a kitty-sized soda because otherwise I'm given the Titanic tankard size of soda. But that's where they make their money and if people don't go to the theaters because the tickets are too much, they're not ma- But their response is, well, we've raised concession prices as much as we possibly can. So the only yes. place we have left to raise, yeah, because no, you should be lowering your concession prices. I go to movies and consciously say I am not buying concessions because it's, it's insane how much expensive they are. I just don't want them anymore. But I know one person who could talk about theater chains and average ticket prices, and that would be the new head of NATO. You talked about it in your newsletter. Tell us about the newsletter and where they can subscribe and tell us about who the new head is.
0: I also talked about variable pricing in the newsletter. You did indeed, uh, and uh, you you uh, picked up a few of the talking points about con- you know bad concerts. You're comparing yourself to concerts and air travel, two things that nobody likes <laughs> paying for uh, the way the way they uh, have to pay for them, uh, and and they're ju- it's just uncomparable. You can subscribe to the Marquee at uh, if you go to celluloidjunkie.com. Uh, You can find uh, there's a a little link off on the right sidebar there. If you enter your email address, you will be subscribed to our weekly newsletter. We will not spam you. Uh, This week, I wrote about the new head of the. Of the National Association for Theater Owners, which does, as you say, track some of these things. Uh, The new head of NATO is going to be Michael O'Leary. Uh, it's not going to be some everybody thought it was going to be Jackie Brenneman who is their executive vice president, their general counsel. She was very instrumental uh, in getting all of the independent operators, so not AMC. They, they, people they, who
1: aren't pub- they better hope they don't lose her.
0: Yeah, well, exactly uh, she, so if you were in maybe you owned two theaters, maybe you owned one theater, maybe you owned ten theaters uh, but and you're a big company like say Regency here in in Los Angeles where they they kind of have all these outlier movie theaters, they might even have 12 of them. Uh, They might even have close to 100 screens. Well, if you're not a public company, you are allowed to get and apply for a shuttered venue operator grant. Jackie Brenneman helped secure those along with uh, her team uh, for movie theater operators. Uh, And everybody thought, well, of course, it will be Jackie because you know, she really was next in line, so to speak, and being groomed for the position. John Fithian uh, announced his retirement in October. They started an executive search and they went with uh, Michael O'Leary. Who a- and now is... tell us
1: about all the information you know about Michael O'Leary to explain why he got the job. You're like, who's Michael O'Leary?
0: Yeah, everybody's asking, who is Michael O'Leary? I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. I don't know. He's probably a very nice person. Uh, he lives and works in Washington, D.C. He is a lobbyist. He is uh, a, a policy, a guy who has worked with the Motion Picture Association, 21st Century Fox, uh, and I think one other studio he has been on, uh, you know, worked for the Justice Department under copyright, uh, you know, uh, enforcement. So what does he know about the film? A, what a, does he
1: know about the film industry?
0: I don't know. I will. That will be what I ask him. Wow. <laughs> uh, one person wrote back to me and said, uh, You know, it's not like John Fithian knew anything about the film industry. He was a Washington uh, lobbyist, and nobody knew who he was either. Yes, but he was working for NATO at the time. It's not like he just showed up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And he was one of NATO's lawyers, and they said, oh, well, he knows NATO. Let's let him do it. Uh, He moved the headquarters of NATO from, uh, Fithian did, moved them from, uh, you know, basically Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., and that group now lobbies Congress and legislatures around the country on various topics, one of them being, ironically, minimum wage. Uh, and and uh, so, yeah, nobody knows who Michael O'Leary is. Uh, I agree with you that uh, it would be nice if Jackie Brenneman stayed around uh, at NATO because she is very valuable, but I could understand why she might not want to.
1: Well, why they won't be able to keep her, exactly. Um, well, so that, that's
0: not to say by the way, that Michael O'Leary, that, that there is anything, well, but you need to make a Michael good O'Leary case a when very,
1: you need to make a good case to pull out a stranger who knows nothing about the business or certainly nothing in their curriculum vitae that justifies why you've hired them over somebody who was already in position, a woman ready to take over doing a great job. So no, let's not just go, well, Do you we'll give what, them a shot. You know, it's like, no, that's, they may be, you want to know what
0: my personal thoughts are. Mm-hmm. My personal thoughts are that Jackie Brenneman was has been there for uh, nine years maybe uh at nato and by the way nato represents movie theaters in 101 countries so it's not just the united states and not just canada
1: and so that means there's all those more uh terrific people who might do a great job of representing worldwide interests in exhibitor uh you know companies with knowledge of international overseas you might say okay they used they chose someone who's you know a powerhouse in europe or a powerhouse in Asia because of all that knowledge they bring to the table from another part of the world. But that wasn't the case.
0: No, they went with a Washington guy who, you know, it is a lobbying... Uh, right, lobbying is organization lobbying. ...organization in part. Right. Uh, in part, in part. It's not, that's not the only thing they do. But uh, I think that Jackie being there under John Fithian, uh, I think John Fithian uh, was always saying he wanted to retire. It's probably coming a little sooner than he wanted. And the reason being... Is that for three solid years, NATO was focused on keeping the little guys alive. However, there are eight automatic board seats that are given to the eight top uh, chains in the country and worldwide by screen count. And those are, you know, AMC, Regal, Cinemark, and they pay the most. And so they're 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 like, Jackie is the
1: person who represents the little guy, and we want someone who's going to represent us.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That basically, you know, for three years, Jackie didn't care about getting no, us money. No, no, and, and that's not true all. Filing for bankruptcy. But that's not true I'm at not, all. I'm, I'm, I'm taking this to an extreme. Uh-huh. But yes, I don't, I don't believe that's true at all, obviously. Uh, but I think that they don't like the fact that, that NATO was very focused on keeping many of the independent operators, as many as they could, alive during COVID. Meanwhile, the public companies like Cinemark, like Regal, like, uh, like AMC, are struggling with huge amounts of debt that they may never be able to to recover from, and of course, Regal has filed for bankruptcy. Uh, Marcus Theaters, also, you know, a public company. Cineplex, also a public company. They're the ones making the decision as to who to hire plus companies they decided al- to go outside. companies
1: always overlook the person that's there doing a good job. Like, ah, oh, they're used to you and now oh, that's your role. And they love to go for that shiny new toy. That's somewhere else rather than the person already there and elevating them to a new position that happens a lot, I think.
0: Yeah, and, you know, lobbying is one thing, and you can go out and lobby. Dealing with the studios is one thing. Dealing with exhibitors is another. But you still have to run an organization. You know, you have to deal with human resources and payroll and, you know, what the budget is. And uh, there's all the things that, you know, uh, all that icky stuff that
1: a lot of people don't want to do. That's right. And at Warner Brothers, uh, they have a new focus. Of course, it's usually revenue or streaming. Uh, At this stage, they are saying at Warner Brothers or whatever the company is called now, they're saying that we really need to focus on and make happen Free cash flow. Free cash flow is really a metric we're going to study hard and reducing our debt. In fact, they have tied the pay for David Zaslav, in part, to a significant degree, not just the stock price, but on those metrics, free cash flow and reducing debt. They've also created a honeypot of $27 million to dole out to other top execs if they do a good job on free cash flow and reducing debt. So that's job one at Warner Brothers. And I guess it's not enough to just you know be paid a good salary to do your job. You got to get an extra incentive to do it really well. <laughs> Do you know what the pay disparity is? I'm sure or? it's three to four hundred to one. And that doesn't take into account the fact that they have turned a lot of people who used to work for their for the Warner Brothers into independent contractors.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, David Zasloff got paid two hundred and forty six million dollars last year. Mm-hmm, good for him. And that's like something like 60 times. No, the amount.
1: no, it's way more than that. It's got to be way more than 60 times the average pay. Oh, yeah, you know what? Actually, it's more more like 600, I'm sure. Or maybe it was 2,000 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's way more than 60 times. That's old school. (laughs) That's old school. Or
0: 6,000 times, yeah. We
1: used to be outraged at 50 times. Now it's, you know, now it's 500% times the average worker. And when you say that at Amazon, for example, you're ignoring the fact that so many people keep Amazon running who aren't technically working for Amazon. The people who help maintain the website on, you know, independent contracting, people who deliver stuff for them, but they don't actually work for them who make, you know, even crappier wages. But yeah, yeah, it's a lot of money. And free cash flow. I guess I got to learn what that is. That would be my first job. Okay, I will work on free cash flow. Thank you. What the hell is free cash flow? (laughs) I don't have any. Do you? I know the answer. Let's do reboots. And they're not rebooting the Lord of the Rings, though they are making more Lord of the Rings movies at Warner Brothers, but they are repurposing that Lord of the Rings musical. It was in the West End in the mid-2000s, like 2006. The terrific stage director, Matthew Warchus, directed it. I saw it. It actually wasn't that bad. It wasn't good. But the Celtic music was sort of woven throughout very well. And they had some cool stage stagecraft. Not successful, but it was interesting and they're going to take that music Well, probably we jigger a little bit and they're going to mount it outdoors. So there will be a you know a, a nature setting for the Lord of the Rings musical. So they're going to keep that going. But reboots are never going to go away. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil that's being turned into a musical with Taylor Mack working on the book. And then that had me thinking about all these stuff. And they just mentioned they're going to redo Faulty Towers. And I thought, oh, where's Faulty? What? Well, they, yeah, we talked about that. They're doing Faulty Towers, a new one with Basil and his granddaughter or daughter uh, trying to open a, 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 a you know a boutique in again. And so that's happening. And I thought, oh, where is Faulty Towers? Anyway, where's that plane? And I looked and the original series of Faulty Towers, as far as I can tell, is not streaming anywhere. You can buy it on Blu-ray or DVD, but you cannot stream it, which is like insane. I'm like, well, that's crazy. Surely Monty Python's flaw. Nope. The, the TV series Monty Python's Flying Circus also not available. And if you go to our website, you'll see a list of tons of shows like The Honeymooners, Moonlighting, The Cosby Show, Pee Wee's Playhouse, Thirty uh, Something, a bunch of miniseries, Shogun, The Winds of War, Rich Man, Poor Man, Holoc. Once you start looking, there's so much television that is not available for streaming anywhere. Uh, hopefully, that people can work out all these issues. And there's great—you know—they're cutting down on libraries, and yet there's so much great stuff that's falling through the cracks. People aren't buying as much DVD and Blu-ray anymore and you think everything's available at the click of a button, but it's not really. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness, uh, The Paper Chase, The World of War, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, uh, Cosmos with Carl Sagan, Anne of Green Gables from 1985. There's so much television that is not available. That's just the big stuff. I don't expect all in the family, upstairs, downstairs. Northern exposure, that's a music rights issue, but a lot of television is not available easily for most people, and it's just going to get worse.
0: And then it'll just disappear. Right, and that stuff, that stuff won awards. And, oh, you know who won awards, actually? What? A bunch of spirits. They gave nope. spirits, uh, I'm assuming these are ghosts of some kind. Oh, very nice. The Ghost of Christmas uh, Past won, you know, favorite m- recurring b- character. Best- Yes, uh, but, you know, best chain shaking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, he wasn't
1: one of the ghosts. That was Jacob Marley, uh, but he, would, he was oh, okay. a ghost, but he wasn't the ghost of Christmas past. He just said, oh, the ghosts are coming.
0: Oh, uh, okay. He was the ghost no, preview. Uh, the, the Independent Spirit Awards were held over the weekend, and the big winner was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, and women dominated uh, gender-neutral acting categories. That's right. They
1: began gender-neutral acting categories as we're doing at the IRAs and the women dominated this year. Next year might be men. It depends on the crop of uh, performances that year, but uh, they weren't the only ones. The editors, the Ace Awards came out, Top Gun, Maverick, and Everything Everywhere won the top editing award. So they didn't pick one kahuna. They didn't say this is the, the, the best edited film of all, but those two are certainly high in the running. I would, I would guess they'll be battling it out for the Oscar the cinematographers another good news Elvis won the cinematography award that was done by Mandy Walker and she's the first woman to win that award How is that possible Well I just hard for women to
0: break blows through my mind
1: Yeah well haven't been yeah, many female wow. cinematographers it's hard to break in union job male dominate Oh sweetheart give me a tea you know well those days are happily starting to be over
0: Uh, You know, so when you look at who was nominated uh, and and people are always asking, oh, was this a precursor to the Oscars? Is that this how the Oscars is going to go? Very often what will happen uh, is that or I don't want to say very often. Sometimes what will happen in the acting categories is the award will go to somebody that the people who vote for the independent spirits believe is not going to win the Oscar. So it's almost like a consolation prize. But like, this, no, but this, we know you're not going to win the Oscar, yeah. but here you go.
1: But, well, and it's also smaller movies. Yes. And this year, however, they gave it to a lot of people from Everything Everywhere
0: all at once. Yes, to Michelle, Michelle Yao. And, and, and who was up against, by the way, you say, you say was, was uh, how many men were nominated in that category?
1: Well, there were. I think it was a long list of 10, but don't hold me to that.
0: It was, and... and and how many of them were
1: men? I don't know. exactly. I don't know. Yeah, two. Well, okay. So there were a lot of great female performances this year. Unless you think there were a lot of men who were shut out in properly. Again, they have to be in small films, right? Independent, right? So that's, this is just, uh, you know, the smallest, uh, the smallest level, right? We're not looking at movies that are, you know, available. You know, you're not going to, if you're in a big movie, you won't be available. Uh, so yeah, but it wasn't just uh, Michelle Yao. It was also Ki Hui Kwan. He won for Best Supporting Performance. And Stephanie Hsu, I apologize, not knowing how to pronounce her name. She was the daughter in Everything Everywhere. She won for Best Breakthrough Performance. So they, they snagged three awards in the acting, the, all, all three that were basically available.
0: Yeah, and they won Best Director, they won?
1: Yeah, well, no, they won many more, but I'm just, you were talking about acting. But who won in uh, the Writers Guild? I know they had their awards over the weekend, and of course, just like the cinematographers and the editors, they are ones who some of their members vote on the Oscars.
0: Well, wasn't it Everything Everywhere all at once? They're winning every award everywhere all at once, it seems. Well, they, hey. they won
1: for Best Original Screenplay, and Women Talking by Sarah Polly. she won for Best Adapted Screenplay, so that was interesting to see. And, uh, oh, okay. and so everybody's looking at the tea leaves to say, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? How many members overlap and this and that and the other thing? And one thing that they're looking at is the metric. I saw a news story that said, ho, ho, uh, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Elvis, Elvis is really being streamed a lot on a 2.7 billion minutes. So uh, that looks like, whoa, that's a lot, uh, Two days later, somebody else said, oh, by the way, All Quiet on the Western Front, nine billion minutes. That story came out because somebody said, well, let's make our argument here. And then somebody else said, well, Top Gun Maverick? Um, actually, we have no idea. I don't know why, but Paramount's not playing games with, uh, you know, offering up measurements. So we don't know how many minutes of Top Gun Maverick have been streamed, but you can't really use that as a metric. I mean, obviously, it's good. You know that people have been watching All Quiet on the Western Front, but overall, Some movies are still in theaters. (laughs) You know, they haven't come to streaming yet. Others have been available for streaming in a limited way or for premium prices. So it's apples to oranges, really. But success in any metric, whether it's box office or streaming or, you know, digital rentals or whatever, is obviously a good thing because it means people are seeing your movie. But if they want to see Avatar The Way of Water, they still got to go to theaters. But since we're talking about streaming, looking at some of the TV numbers, if that's the way to term it, uh, The Last of Us, what's happened to them? HBO was reporting the numbers loudly and clearly every week. Uh, It was building week to week. It was becoming a blockbuster series. Then they put an episode on Friday night because of the Super Bowl and i'm still waiting to see what their total numbers are for that episode and the one after it we're still getting reviews and stuff but they sort of drop the ball and it's really hard people need to do a better job of presenting all these numbers because they build also it's not the overnight numbers it's plus 7 plus 14 plus you know so you know these shows are becoming big hits and we want to tell that story and they're not doing it in a systemic Positive, useful way so that everybody can know. Wow, I need to see that show. For example, on ABC, there's a new series called Will Trent, a standard police, you know, crime cop show. It's based on novels by Karen Slaughter, a terrific writer that I've interviewed a couple times. I really like her work, so it's been highly anticipated. The first episode debuted to 3.6 million viewers overnight on ABC. You're like, hmm. Not great, you know. Now, that first episode has been watched by 18 million people. That's a lot. Wow. That's getting big. That's getting up to the last of us numbers. I mean, not quite, but that's a lot for ABC. That's turning into a really big hit. And I I assume that that's building week to week because people are liking the episodes. They probably come back and watch the second episode sooner and sooner and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of numbers out there. The sooner they get them to us, the better. I wish they did a good job like in the UK. In the UK, you get the streaming numbers two weeks after. So they start giving the numbers sooner, though they have to keep adding to it because people keep watching, but we get the numbers and we get info from every platform, the four screen platform. We find out who's watching on TV, laptops, phones, and tablets, and they give us all that info that they have. And so we know that Death in Paradise, the long running crime show is at number one this week with like 7 million viewers. That's just, you know, from the week of mid-February. And Vera, another crime show that's been long running and so on and so forth. And there's one interesting show. It's a miniseries called The Gold. And it stars Dominic Cooper from the History Boys and a lot of other cool stuff. And it tells the true story of the 1983 heist of gold bullion, diamonds and cash taken from a warehouse near Heathrow that was at the time the largest bank robbery in history. And that miniseries is ongoing in the UK. It looks very interesting. I bet it comes to us. I bet it hits streaming. We'll want to know about it. But now because they started trumpeting those numbers, we know the show looks like a success on broadcast back in the UK.
0: And so what you're saying is, if, a, like, say, I don't know, uh, a movie, let's say, is like a big hit in the UK. Yes. Uh, and we hear about it because of box office numbers. We'll be- we might want to see it when it opens in the United States exactly. or in Australia or Orange.
1: That's um, why we look at the worldwide box office.
0: It's a big deal how much yeah, movies to
1: make all over the world.
0: Well, if that's a big deal, then I wonder what you think about some of our stories in our patented copyrighted big deal big whoop segment. Our this segment, big deal big whoop. It's where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story a24 is not waiting for Oscar night to celebrate its high on award success, box office success and that two hundred and twenty five million dollars it raised a year ago this March to invest in films and beyond. Well, here comes the and beyond part. A24 just paid ten million dollars. And I'm, you know, dramatic pause here so that, you know, what, what do they pay it for? The off Broadway theatrical venue Cherry Lane Theater. Huh? Now, tr- Yeah. Cherry Lane began in 1923, but it had some financial stumbles even before the pandemic. According to the Hollywood Reporter, it plans to keep the space as a live venue. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Uh, it seems like a big deal because it seems like a big mistake to me. Like they have, did they hire someone who knows live theater? Are they expanding into live theater? Is this Is it just a hobby? Uh, do they have new people? That I mean, what the hell? Like when Netflix bought the Paris here in Manhattan or the Egyptian over there in Los Angeles or California, I should say, uh, that made sense. You're like, okay, they need a venue, they want to be able to showcase their movies. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable expense. It makes certain sense. That's in their wheelhouse. Uh, live theater is not something Eight Twenty Four does. I love live theater. I love the Cherryland. I'm happy to see it. You know, stay alive and have a new owner. But this feels like people with too much money and not enough sense and not enough focus. You know, if you're going to expand, okay. But tell us your plan and why you're doing it and who you're hiring. And, you know, uh, you know that's a whole new kettle of fish live theater. so
0: Well, maybe, maybe it'll come out in time.
1: Yeah, but... Maybe it's, maybe it's a real estate investment. Who knows? Well, that would be a mistake.
0: Yeah. Well, in the world of casting directors, a controversy has grown over the practice of self-taping. I keep self-taping my auditions and sending them out all over the place. <laughs> Nothing. But... Uh, nothing not a thing uh by the way self-taping is the new normal in auditions even as we come out of the pandemic in the first round of auditions uh self-taping is asking actors to self-tape themselves self-tape the audition and submit that rather than getting in the room with a casting director receiving feedback and the chance to tweak their work it's not the case all the time but it is definitely becoming that way and actors they're beginning to feel the pressure they're jumping on their their iPhone and tossing off an audition. It's not going to cut it anymore. At least that's what they think. So they pay third party companies and or head over to a studio to get the most professional self tape possible and pay for the privilege. The controversy? One casting company offered to help actors self tape for a fee. As long as the project wasn't, you know, one the company was actually working on. Actors got A great self-tape and advice from pros, while the casting director got a fee that would otherwise go to somebody else. Of course, this smacks of the unethical practice of getting people to pay to audition. And the rebuke across the industry has been, well, pretty strong. Big deal or big whoop?
1: I think it's a big whoop because I don't think it'll catch fire. I can understand how they did this. Like, well, you know, we know how to do this. Other people are making money doing it. Why shouldn't we? As long as it's not our project, you know, what's the harm? We know how to, you know. So I get it but it is a mistake because the casting director is supposed to be your safe space. They're supposed to have your best interests at heart. They're supposed to be champions for the actors. That's what they do. That's what they love. That's why no legitimate casting director would say, well, you need headshots here. We'll do them for you for $300 or well, yeah, you can audition for this show, but you're going to have to pay us 50 And Like, no, they don't do that. And this gets too close to that. So I think it was a mistake, but hopefully they've learned that and we'll move on. It's a shame if self-taping becomes the norm, because you never know what happens when someone comes in the room or they don't have the ability or funds. If I was an actor, I'd want to get it as professional as possible too. And now you've just raised the bar. And, And I've spoken to casting directors and they say, no, no, you really don't, you know, long as it's minimal, you do not need to spend it's like, yeah, that's what you say. But nonetheless, I can't help feeling the more professional it is, the better shot I have. And so I can see why
0: actors would do it. The casting director. I never look at when I'm hiring. I never look uh, at where someone went to college on their resume before I call them in for an interview. You, oh, really? Who would you call in for interviews? Harvard. The guy from Harvard. The guy from Stanford. And the guy from Yale. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. So you know,
0: uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, who self-tapes themselves uh, for a, a role was, and of course, this was in you know Val, the documentary about Val Kilmer. He self-taped himself for Oliver Stone playing uh, the Doors, uh, Jim Morrison. Yeah. But the part of the Yeah, part of the problem, and you've kind of pointed it out, is the fact that like a lot of actors, especially when they're starting out, they're beginning to meet casting directors. And by doing that, casting directors will go, you know what? I actually know somebody who is really good for this role, Uh, hasn't done anything, but I met them about a year ago and they were really good in the room. Let me let me I have their headshot. Let me call. Or they'll take an actor aside, an actor, an actress, and say, hey, look, you're way too green for this, or you're, you're totally not the right person for this role, and I, the director's never going to go for you. But I thought you did a really good job. So keep up the good work. I'm going to keep your name on file, And it just is a little nice boost of, you know, of encouragement.
1: Exactly. On the other hand, some casting directors say, well, look, we can see a lot more people with self-taping. It's a lot of work for them. It's not easier for them as such because they're up late at night watching a lot more tape, but they say sometimes we can see people who aren't in the room or they're not necessarily in LA or New York, wherever we're based. So it does give us a bigger net and we love to get people in for the second round. So it's not all bad, I guess. Uh, It seems to be all bad, however, in the regional sports network world. This story has been going on for a few weeks. It's convoluted. It's confusing. The short Story is that Bally's Sports is the name for a regional sports network owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, which is a regional television station network, a conservative Fox News type local television network, and they own Bally's Sports, and this company is going bankrupt. They're eyeing bankruptcy. In fact, Major League Baseball is saying, well, look, they've got some of our games. Any games that are disrupted by their bankruptcy, we will air It's like, okay, great. There's other regional sport networks owned by like Warner Brothers. They said, look, we're losing money on this. If we can't figure this out, we may go bankrupt or just dump them. So suddenly where people saw regional sports networks as this huge cash cow, as something that was just, you know, there's always going to be fans for the SEC. There's always going to be fans for this, that, and the other thing. Suddenly, they're not doing as well as they used to do, and it's having a big ripple effect. Like, Bally Sports has got a lot of TV deals with the ACC, where Florida State and some other schools are, and the question whether the money that they expect to come in from those deals is going to fall apart, This could have a big effect on college sports. It certainly has a big effect on the value, and the prominence of regional sports networks.
0: Yeah, I mean, this story could have been in Inside Baseball, and I've been meaning to. It, it's maybe just, say, I, it's just
1: so complicated. I just kept getting a headache trying to figure it out. I didn't know what to say because I barely understood. It's like they're all not doing as well as they used to, and they're going bankrupt. And people are like, "I don't want to be in this
0: business anymore." That's what Warner Brothers is saying. We want out. Right, because they all paid a lot of money for the rights for t- to the teams. Uh, and they're long contracts. I mean, if you look at the at the Dodgers contract, it's like an, like a some hundreds of billions. I don't know how much it was, but it was like a thirty year deal or some something silly like
1: that. And 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 even worse for some ACC schools like the Florida State University, they signed a really long term contract, and now they're like wow, we should be getting a lot more money and we've screwed ourselves over by signing this 10-year deal, 20-year deal, which means we're not going to be able to get more money and they can't leave the ACC and move into the SEC, which is something they like to do because they are tied down by this TV contract so it gets ugly and difficult um bally sports does not want to go out of business period they're eyeing bankruptcy in order to reorganize themselves and say oh let's get rid of all this debt and you know try and start over fresh financially so they're not saying they will disappear off the face of the earth but it is going to have a big ripple effect
0: well it'll have a ripple effect on sports because you know if you're thinking about it all of these players 20 million dollars here 20 million dollars per year there how does that happen well because a team that was sold in 2004 for, for 400 million dollars, the Los Angeles Dodgers, sold a little over 10 years later, maybe it was 10 years later, for $2 point something billion dollars. Well, how does, how does that happen? It was all television money. Yep. And what happened is what happened is all of those regional sports networks. They were on, they're on cable. They're a part of your cable package. So Michael, you might like the Yankees and you might pay, uh, like the fact that you pay for cable and MSG network is on your cable and you get to watch the Yankees because-
1: The Yes Network. Yes. The Yankees own their own TV rights.
0: Sorry. Yes. The Yes Network. So you might like that, but that Yes Network, uh, your neighbor who's, let's say, I don't know, uh, she's 65- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a 65-year-old person who doesn't watch sports at all, doesn't care about sports and only watches Fox News or MSNBC, she's paying for it. And guess what? That's they're, they're, going away. They're because, cutting the cord.
1: They're, and they're, they're yes. saying, I don't want to pay for ESPN either.
0: Right. And that's so all of a sudden, everybody's cutting the cord. There aren't enough subscribers. It, all of that cross-subsidization isn't happening anymore. And it was cross-subsidizing Major League Baseball. Football's o- still okay. The NBA, hockey, and Major League Baseball are in for a world to hurt because of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry we
1: didn't make it baseball. Maybe if there's some new wrinkle we can tackle it or get a reporter in to talk about it. But I am very excited by this next story because I, I may be a little old for it, but I still feel like it's in my sweet spot. Maybe I could benefit.
0: Yeah, you, well, you are ready for your close-up, Michael, because China is embracing a new type of star. woo Not the teen idols you might expect. Not the hot young men in their 20s known creepily as little fresh meat. Not preteens, even. Not even adorable grandparents, you know, for that warm and fuzzy feeling. The latest hot celebrity category? Uncle stars. You heard me say that correctly. These are men in their mid 40s, and they're getting snapped up for product endorsements and the like, since they're less likely to surprise companies with a sexting scandal or, you know, some other youthful indulgences. Plus, they're the same age as many consumers of luxury brands with a legacy behind them, as opposed to some new video game or product. One downside, uncle stars aren't constantly on every social media platform live streaming their daily <laughs> yeah, lives. That's actually like a plus. I do, Michael. That's actually yeah. a
1: plus people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, already some fans are wondering, wait a second, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. hit the break, sweetheart. Where are the auntie stars? You know, come on big
1: yell, big whoop. I like how you said, sweetheart, just to, just a sexual, you know, just to be sexually patronizing just for a second there.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's, I was stealing the line from Han Solo. Oh,
1: okay. There you go. Hit the
0: brakes, sweetheart.
1: You know, well, when I, you just, I think it's interesting as every age group gets older and younger, different, you know, people pop up but every age should be an age that people can be celebrated and can be useful for endorsing your products. And there's a lot of reason why, you know, men of a certain age seem like a hot commodity. Of course, they're all generally quite good looking and fit. It's not, not like, schlumpy middle aged men are becoming stars or you know, product endorsers, but it makes perfect sense to me, and I don't see why there wouldn't be auntie stars following right away. Oh, and by the way, breaking news Paramount it got an email during the show saying Paramount is looking to sell BET, the black entertainment television cable channel, and then another email saying Tyler Perry is kicking the tires. So, that's all happening, maybe done before the end of the show.
0: Well, and why, why is that? That's because much like the regional sports networks, you know, the cable, cable channels are, are turn, less money. Yeah, they're like, hey, man, we can't force all these people to pay for all this anymore. So which, which channels? The animal planet. Let's get rid of that. Uh, TV land, let's get rid of that. BET, yeah, get rid of that too. You know, well, they're just and that's starting a great, to get that's rid of a, things.
1: That's a great brand and it would be valuable as a streamer. And I think it would, oh, has, yeah. has a future. So I don't think uh, a cable company would be wise to cut BET. Maybe OWN is a little lower rated, but BET yeah, has it, a long yeah. history, you know.
0: Or like the History Channel or something like that, you know. Yeah. It's very expensive for musicians and actors, by the way, and other artists to come to the United States and perform. And now it's about to get a lot more expensive. The United States government just proposed major price hikes for working visas. And basically everything about that change. those changes will prove a major roadblock for artists from other countries. P visas, the letter P visas, they are for short tours. So if you're just taking a quick drive through the US, a barnstormer tour, you get a P visa. O visas are for more established acts and they last about three years. So if you're the Rolling Stones, you're working on an O visa. Both will almost quadruple in cost from four hundred and sixty dollars to more than sixteen hundred dollars. Plus, of course, you pay an additional six hundred dollar fee for processing. Now, of course, if you need those visas right now, this instant, the premium processing costs twenty five hundred dollars, but it will take longer going from 15 calendar days to 15 working days. And by the way, that process is now limited to twenty five people per request. So imagine if you've got an orchestra, you'll have to file multiple times, probably at least five separate petitions for like a hundred piece orchestra. That'll cost an additional twelve thousand five hundred dollars. A group of UK bodies publicly called for the U.S. to rethink these changes, saying it's especially bad timing since the touring business is still recovering from the covid lockdown. True. Big deal or big whoop. Well, I wonder how long we can keep saying that. Hey,
1: we're still recovering from COVID. You know, two, three years from now, it's going to get harder and harder as time after goes on. T-
0: after 25, after 20, most people are, you can see the the arc coming back from 25. It's going to be very clear in most industries.
1: Yeah, well, uh, let's hope so. Um, that's still two years away. Um, this... You know, at first I thought, well, I don't force 160 dollars to sixteen hundred dollars, that's a lot. That's a big change, but sixteen hundred dollars to come tour, surely, I can see why that might be a problem for orchestras, but one piece in the story said that people claim it could wipe out nearly a third of their potential profits. I'm like, wow. Like if you're just talking about like a band of four people, that sounds like a lot. Like they're only gonna make what, thirty thousand dollars and that's gonna be a third of it's gonna be wiped out? It just it just seemed like a lot. Yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're like like when churches first started playing around, or mm-hmm. you know these indie bands where they'll get like a thousand dollars a night, which seems like a lot of money, you know, so you a thousand dollars a night.
1: expenses: hotel, airplane. Yeah,
0: exactly. Fresh and then you start rental. going, okay, so we're playing thirty dates over two months, but that's thirty thousand dollars, so. You know, we're not going to make a living off of it, but we can at least say we toured the U.S. and that'll be on our resumes and and it just doesn't it doesn't pay for it. And now, of course, you got to pay, you know, sixteen hundred dollars or, you know, yeah, it's not going to work. Finally, we have the Colombian singer Carol G. She just made history. Her new album, Manana Sera Bonito, is her first number one album. On the Billboard Top 200 album chart. It's also her first album to debut at number one. It's the third primarily Spanish language album to top the charts, following, of course, two by Bad Bunny. Uh, and therefore, by the way, drum roll, it's the first <laughs> primarily Spanish language album by a woman to top the charts. That just blows my mind. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Uh, big deal. I mean, he was the first person to top the charts with the Spanish language, primarily Spanish language album. So yeah. Uh, yeah. it's great to see. It's cool talented artists, people can listen to music from all over the world, people all over the world who don't speak English listen to Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and, and Drake, so there's no reason why people who don't speak Spanish shouldn't listen, and it's so much easier today to get lyrics and get English language translations that there's no excuse really, and frankly, I wish the streamers They do a good job. They present lyrics now a lot of the time, especially for new albums. You can tap on it and look at the lyrics right there. They should also have an English language translation. There's no reason not to, Uh, or, or, and put it into another language like Spanish or French or German. You know, get to work on that because the language translations are available for the big acts and you should be offering them so people can look at one and the other or even side by side. You know, it's very easy. The info's there. Just use it.
0: Well, that sounds like Inside Baseball, but that also sounds like a segue. So I don't really know if that is Inside Baseball, but it is time for Inside Baseball, which is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, I'm going to save us all a lot of time. There's going to be a writer strike. Wow. End of story. No doubt. I have no doubt in my mind.
1: Because writers want more money for streaming and the studios don't want to give it to them.
0: Correct. Because they already went from analog dollars to digital dimes, the studios did, and so they've already you know, realize, ooh, this streaming stuff isn't as lucrative as we thought. They're losing money. And
1: they're most of them. If you're not Netflix, money. yes. And so, like, why do we pay you more? You're like, they're like, because you're going to be making money someday soon,
0: <laughs> right? And they're like, no, that does, this is brand new. It's experimental. We don't know if we're ever going to make any money. Just like those DVDs of blue. It's a hobby. Oh. It's a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, you see, the problem is the studio said that for years with, with DVDs and Blu-rays. It's a brand new
1: technology and we cable no and everything. Yeah, and VHS. Right, and- and everything. They said it about everything ever. Every new use. They're like, well, now this, we don't think this is going to work. <laughs> you got to give us a break. That's what they did in the record yeah. industry when they switched from vinyl to cassettes
0: to CDs. And CDs. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's crazy. And
0: so now the Writers Guild of America, which you'd think that if, if this is in America, doesn't, it doesn't count for the UK. It doesn't count for Europe or Australia or China. Oh, it does. Yeah, not so much. It totally does because... And, mm-hmm. We are we are at least here in Hollywood and really the United States, a company town here in Hollywood, uh, a lot of the stuff that makes money for for those overseas stems from content that is made here in the United States.
1: Well, and standards that are set here filter out to other countries. And if countries in the EU and the artists in there gain something, then it filters back to the US. It's not a one-way street, but innovations in contracts and negotiations. And hey, this is important. When that works in the EU, we say, oh, that's a good idea. And we use it. And the same thing works in the other way. So it's not just, you know, oh, we lead the way. It's no, anywhere artists achieve a new metric or goal or something that makes sense, then everybody else wants to adapt it all over the world. And that's why the writers go went to their members and said, hey, we want you to vote on a pattern of demands. I didn't quite understand what that meant last week, but that's just the stuff they want to focus on. They want to say, what do you want us to negotiate on? What are the big issues
0: facing us today? Tell us. Addressing the abuse of mini rooms. Okay, that's number one, it's, which is fewer TV writers are hired for a shorter period of time. So basically, remember when, uh, Michael, A season would be what 22 episodes, right? Yeah, because you needed in four years, you needed by the way, four years after the fourth year, all the actors got to renegotiate their contracts, right? So, of course, you know, all the networks wanted to, if a show was a hit, they didn't want to have to, they wanted to be able to have like a hundred episodes to strip and syndicate, they and then say, Nope, we're only doing four years, bye bye, yeah. Uh, and and so that's why they did 22 episodes per year, they needed 22. Weeks and what, is, what does this content? have to do with mini rooms? Now they have 13 or 12 episodes. Or eight. Or 10 episodes. Six. Right. And so instead what they're doing is they're going, okay, instead of like the 10 writers we would have gotten, all right, hire those five. Put them, uh, put the, but only hire them for five episodes. Then hire another five. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's gotten out of control. They just hire a group of writers for short periods of time. I don't know, just work on these three episodes. And then we're going to take a break. And then we're going to shoot the other stuff.
1: And like every other change, they had some purpose and then they became abused. They became the new norm. Like there was some limited purpose where it made sense, but then suddenly they're doing it all the time and abusing it for situations where it doesn't work. And it really puts fewer writers with more work on their plate for less money. (laughs) So that's no good. They also, of course, want to increase minimum payments. That's pretty self-explanatory.
0: What's next? Increasing residuals for and this is a quote, <laughs> undercompensated reuse markets. Hmm. Guess what that means? Streaming.
1: Yes, pretty much. And they want to span protection. That is to compensate for increased time spent per TV episode. Used to be you do a new TV episode every week. Now, TV episodes can take 10 days, eight days, nine days, 12 days, especially when you're doing some elaborate thing on cable or on demand, and it's an eight-episode season. Suddenly, when you're being paid by the episode, uh, that means you're being paid that money for two weeks' work rather than one week's work, and that's not working out. That's not fair.
0: Yeah, and there was a freelancer rule, right? And Mm -hmm. what that meant was you had to give a story by credit or hire somebody to write a script that was not in the writer's room. If you went into a second season and, and this is the, the catch here. And if you were 13 episodes or more. So if you were over 13 episodes, then as the studio, you had to like go out and find somebody to write a freelance, you know, to basically come in and freelance for an episode and either give them credit and pay them. And, and you know what the students were like, you know what? Uh, we're making 12 episodes. Yeah. So, so that's why 12 episodes all of a sudden became a norm. Uh, in part, uh, and as as far as the time spent per TV episode, generally a streaming show, let's call it a str- ten episodes to twelve episodes, thirteen episodes, even eight. You have twenty weeks to write it. Yeah. Well, when you start doing the math on that, you start going, "Wow, you know, we were able to get eight of those episodes or ten of those episodes done." Well, as a writing room, you and as as a writer hired contracted for that particular, you still owe them the two scripts. So guess whose time you're doing that on your own? Yeah, there's
1: also endless rewrites on what's supposed to be sort of spec work or work that's supposed to be, you know, you're paid to do a rewrite, but then they, could you do another round, another round, another round, Abuse of that where writers are just constantly having to do more and more and more work just to justify some suits, you know, pretense that they're getting ahead when it's actually not going to lead anywhere, or they should actually be paid more money to do that many rewrites. That sort of stuff is getting abused. Some things have already been worked out. For example, you know, you have these short run TV shows on cable and streaming, and then they don't announce the next season for like a year. Meanwhile, you're on hold because of your writer's contract. You can't go work anywhere else, and you may find out a year later it's been canceled you know, because they don't bother to announce it. And suddenly you've been waiting a year and you don't have that job. And now you don't have another job either. And you could have done another job in between seasons because they're not on that regulated fall, spring, summer, winter schedule that you would have in you know episodic television back in the day on the networks. So they've worked that out, but they need to codify that and the regulations as well. And one thing dear to my heart, ratings. Everybody, per variety, the Writers Guild, the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, and all those other guilds are waiting for the Writers Guild to get the best deal they can so they can build on that or at least get that. They all want much greater transparency on viewership. They're tired of this BS where Netflix is like, yeah, we'll do another season, but you know. It was all right. (laughs) They're like, wait a second, is this a big hit or not? People are willing to risk more up front to share more in the back end. How do you do back end without syndication? I don't know. How do you figure out what show is a hit? I don't know. But step one is to end the black box where the only people know are the suits at the streamers as terms of how well your show is actually done. And if they do that and they're smart, they'll use all those metrics to promote their shows because they're doing a really bad job of sharing what big hits uh, will. Bill Trent on ABC, Euphoria on HBO Max, and whatever Netflix's latest hit is might be as well, because Netflix seems to only care about the first thirty days, which is dumb. But they all want more information. Information is power.
0: Well, and okay, so a couple things here, and we, by the way, one of their last, uh, you know, demands is ensuring that writers are paid throughout the production of a show, which is what I was just kind of talking about. Yeah. There. Um. If you think about it, most of these writers that we're talking about live in Los Angeles or New York. So those two very expensive cities to live in. And there are yes, there are writers like Ryan Murphy. They get paid a fortune and there are lots of showrunners that get paid a fortune and they can continue to live in Los Angeles. However, most of the workaday writers, and i, I don't mean that in any any dis- disrespect. It, 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 you know, As a workaday showrunner
1: yourself of a podcast, you mean no disrespect. You include yourself yeah, in that right. term, workaday podcaster.
0: Uh, no, actually, I, they would be above me. The workaday writers definitely like a couple rungs up. Oh that. yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, so, but there are twenty thousand people represented by the Writers Guild of America. Okay, there might be a thousand that are in that category of like making decent money. Most would make between, and yes, this is a lot of money, hundred to $300,000 a year. They'd be able to support their life. I don't think most writers make that. that, that yeah, well, most okay. actors or 90% of actors that. are unemployed all, at all times. Most
1: television writers
0: that were working television writers, working television writers.
1: Well, if you're working, then you have a job. But the, how many WJ members aren't working at any particular time? I, I think you may be overstating uh, how much money they make members of the the WJ. that would be great. But it doesn't matter what they make, it's what they deserve for what they're delivering.
0: Right, it's thousands upon thousands of writers. You know, there used to be 15, 20 writers in a writer's room and they would all, and it would cost a lot of money. And now they're saying, well, let's get 10 writers and let's do it for only 20 weeks. And they would be paid less. Why? Because, well, we'll pay you. Part of your payment comes when you're writing the show and during production but we all know where you really are gonna get paid is in all the residuals that you'll receive for the next umpteen years. And residuals don't don't exist anymore. Exactly. However, the level of payment is still at the is still right. at whatever you're making.
1: Of- you've lost an, an, a revenue stream from residuals. Now, of course, uh, not everybody had a hit show that ran forever. But like we had the composer to Gilligan's Island, who did scores for some episodes. He said he made more money from that than Roots, the biggest hit miniseries of all time, at one point. And so, you know, that's you make good money from that. That can help you stay afloat, just like songwriters. And so, people writing for TV realize they've lost this huge revenue stream of residuals when they right for a streamer stuff's not getting put out as much on dvd and blu-ray stuff's not being syndicated stuff can't be syndicated it's 12 episodes you know or it's 18 episodes and everybody's happy and walks away you're not going to see severance stripped five days a week uh severance not that succession you're not going to see succession stripped five days a week there aren't enough episodes plus it's foul-mouthed right it's hbo so all that and then maybe hbo yanks it from your service and just puts it on some you know on-demand cable thing, which is, you know, lower level tier and not as premium and doesn't make you as much money. So they've lost a big revenue stream when they're writing for all these streamers that aren't ever shooting for syndication. So whatever they made before, it's not a question of, well, they make a lot of money, so what's their bone? It's like, no, no, no. They lost a revenue stream. They used to make that money. Next month they may not be working at all. Next year they may not be working at all. So those revenue streams matter. They're also worried about AI. You know, they're worried about Chat GPT, and they've got a thing in there saying, Look, we want to regulate the use of material produced using artificial intelligence or similar technologies. Some rules are already in place. For example, the WGA already prohibits signatories from soliciting or using material from non WGA members. Good news, people Chat GPT is not a member of the WGA yet. <laughs> Deadline actually reached out to ChatGPT and it said, hey, give me a pitch to reboot Mad Men. And it spat out, Mad Men is back and better than ever. This time, the show takes place in the modern day, following a cast of characters as they navigate life in the cutthroat ad industry of the 21st century. Our main protagonist is a new creative director at a major ad agency, and she's determined to make her mark in the industry. I bet she's also Along the way, she'll have to contend with the old-school, male-dominated corporate culture, as well as a new generation of ambitious millennials. With stories of ambition, power struggles, and office politics, Mad Men will appeal to a whole new audience while still retaining the wit and charm of its original incarnation. Get ready for a wild ride. Well, that's not actually a pitch other than we'll do a chick rather than a man and it'll be contemporary rather than period, but that's halfway there. As far as I'm concerned, I'm like, yeah, that's probably what somebody would pitch.
0: Here's my question. How many variables did they give ChatGPT to come up with? Probably none.
1: I've done multiple and it's like it just spits them back out right away. I'm like, name me some of the best audiobooks or, you know, the best the uh, best books uh, by uh, gay and lesbian authors, classics. And it's like, well, they named like five books. I'm like, oh, well, that's, you know, it's pretty good. You don't have to give it much. You
0: really. But what, I thought it was only, it only uh, had information up to 2021. Is that correct? Well, Mad Men came out before 2021. True. Yeah. Uh, well, along with, uh, with, with uh, you know, AI, I think they're also concerned about the fact that, you know, it's just not, it, they're not able to make a living. They're actually beginning to get second jobs outside the industry. Well, a minute ago you in said they're making estate. six
1: figures. Most WGA members make six figures. How are they? No, wh-
0: back back in the heyday, like back in the heyday. Not most. Yes, you're, you okay. are right in okay. saying. I'm, all right. Yeah, not most, but the working writers, the working television writers, need a second job. We're making. Yeah, it's like a job. You know. Now you're not gonna. You're not basically living in Bel Air, buying twenty two million dollar homes. Right. But you could live in Los Angeles quite comfortably, send your kids to school, raise a family. If you were lucky now, enough to have
1: a job. Now, even then, you need a second job.
0: Yeah, now, now it's like good grief. You know, you're, you definitely need a second job. And I don't mean in television. I mean in real estate. Uh, and you mentioned that the WGA and the, and the DGA are kind of watching this. That's true. That's why the Writers Guild, that's why I think there's going to be a strike because they have... They have got to settle this now. Now is the time. Uh, You've
1: got to deal with streaming. We don't care you're not profitable yet. That's where all the money is going. That's where all the work's going. You've killed off syndication for a lot of projects, though there's still a lot of money to be made in syndication and selling shows all over the world. Not that we get info on it, but that's where you're pouring all the money in, so we need to cut. we got to figure it out. And you tell us we don't deserve it because you're losing money? Give us the numbers. Let us know how these shows are doing. I don't know. There's not a single issue that they've raised that I don't understand their point of view and think they have a really good point. None of these seem outrageous to me. I mean, there's not a number on increasing residuals, but should they get a cut of streaming and should it be bigger than it is? Absolutely. None of this BS that it's a new service. You're having big hits. You know, uh, I just, I don't see where they're not being reasonable.
0: And if they don't do it now, the DGA and SAG will come in and they will negotiate their own deals and then the WJ will just kind of have to follow suit and go, no, no just just look at the DGA and SAG. We'll, we'll give you those deals. Well,
1: someone has to go first. And so everybody, all and- the other guilds are rooting for them to get a great deal that breaks ground in these areas like streaming. So they're all in it together, even if they negotiate one by one. Whomever goes first, they're all there concerted knowing this is an important issue. That's why we heard in that article that the PGA and the DGA are all saying, no, 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 enough of this BS about streaming numbers and that it's all a secret. That's over. You know, so like they're already supporting the WJ base saying, no, 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 that's complete nonsense. It ends now. So we'll have to see. But I don't see anything that they're talking about that seems crazy. You know, it's not like they're saying we want 120% of revenue. You know, they're like, no, we just want to be able to take part in the success and we're willing to take part in the failures as well. But you need to be above board with us and streaming is where it's at
0: yeah and by the way you think well okay so this is really only going to affect streaming here's the rub on that one the writers guild of america would be on strike against sony and disney and Paramount. i could go on you know who they're on strike against yes the networks yes the streamers but also the studios and guess what the studios make movies so you would not be making movies during that time either yeah therefore you would have a bubble in the pipeline with nothing to fill it. It would be like a pandemic. Exactly. Right. So bad timing. It could not come at a worse time as the industry is trying.
1: Or to it recover. could not come at a better time if you're negotiating and you feel like you have more strength because they need your work and talent. The writers. Oh the producers, yeah, no, I don't the mean the directors. I, don't mean,
0: I mean just as an industry. Yeah. Well, now, did you hear what Charlie Kaufman said? You know, with his WJ Award speech, he kind of was like, "Look, you know." We are trained to believe that what we do is secondary to what they do. You got nothing without and,
1: us. There's nothing until the printed page. Nothing.
0: Right. And he's, uh, you know, Charlie Kaufman, a big, you know, Academy Award winning screenwriter. Uh, it's, it's definitely, it's, everything's coming home to roost right now. You know, I know lawyers at Paramount who, uh, of course, they own a streaming network, right? They own Paramount Plus. Yeah. They had to negotiate a deal for 13 reasons why. And you know what? They they the the um, second season of that wasn't a a guarantee. And Paramount produced it. Paramount was the production company. And the cast went to the lawyers and said, "Yeah, get us the same deal that Stranger Things got." (laughs) And this was like many years ago, before the pandemic. And of course, the lawyers were like, "Yeah, but we we don't know. We we produced that one too, and all we know." is that they say it's like the best, you know, most watched show and the fastest growing show and all they don't tell us the ratings so we don't really know how to argue this your case because we don't know your ratings. Like here they were the production company yep. trying to negotiate and they they were like I'm negotiating against myself because I don't have any information to go off of.
1: <laughs> and they represented both. So Yep. Well, black boxes are dead and I have some bad news for you, Sterling. Some people died as well. I know you're upset oh, because geez. you're worried I'll take too much damn time. Well, raise your cigarette lighter for guitarist and founding member of Leonard Skinnerd, Gary Rossington. He's dead at 71 after a lifetime of people calling out Freebird. But in his case, it wasn't a joke. He, in fact, delivered one of the most famous guitar solos in history on that AM radio staple. He also co-wrote hits for Skinnerd like Sweet Home Alabama. He was the last surviving member of the band. And that wasn't easy. He survived a terrible car wreck in 76 and the plane crash one year later that sadly killed off like several members of the band and their crew. It was a decade after that crash that surviving members said, let's go on tour and they never stopped. So good for them. Actor Tom Sizemore died at 61. He had some very good roles and a very troubled life. Uh, went to jail for beating one girlfriend. Another girlfriend years later accused him of beating her, and then years after that, he pled no contest to further uh, abuse, physical abuse of a girlfriend. So, uh, some talent there, but also some fad facts about a person uh, who had a recurring problem of beating their partners and also drug addiction. So, a sad and, and
0: the drug addiction was was really the thing that uh, I mean, I I knew him uh, when he was you know in the right in the, during the before and after the Saving Private Ryan years. And he openly talked about using hair. I mean, he was really, uh, uh, he had it bad and it was, you always wondered, like, how is he? How is he doing? Like, how? Well, it you did You understood in, why it, he wasn't working.
1: It didn't. Eventually, uh, you know, it caught up to him in the two thousands. He was working steadily through the nineties. He had a breakthrough on China Beach. He had a breakthrough with Born on the Fourth of July, and then he had lots of good roles for a while: Private Ryan, True Romance, Point Break, Natural Born Killers, Heat. You name it. Uh, Black Hawk Down, and then it really declined because his private life caught up with him. Drug addiction is an addiction. It's a disease. I have empathy for that. That's difficult, but that's very separate from, uh, you know, beating your partner. De Niro even took him personally to check him into rehab at one point. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard. It's very hard. It's not just a question of, you know, will, but that's very different from the other things that he went to jail for, uh, which is very hard to even, you know, I hate to. Oh, what a talented guy. It's like, "Mm," you know. Bad, troubled private life. Let's put it that way. But read the whole obit for Bernie Mattinson. He's a Disney animator, the last full-time employee at Disney who worked with Uncle Walt. And he was about to become the first cast member to celebrate 70 years at the company. When he was six, he saw Pinocchio and said, I want to do that. Like almost literally at 18, he convinced his mom to drop him off at the front gate of the studio. He handed a guard his portfolio and he got a job in the traffic department. But six months later, he was working on the lady and the tramp and he kept working right through strange world. And I don't know you're sad about the next person.
0: Wayne Shorter. I mean, talk about a legend in jazz. This guy He is a jazz saxophone player. He died at the age of 89, and I will kick myself for not seeing him live. Because he played right up until the end. He was a 10-time granny winner.
1: He did it all. He played with Art Blakely's Jazz Messengers, an iconic group. He played with Miles Davis in one of the man's iconic lineups, one of his great sextets. He played on Bitches Brew, a really important jazz fusion album. And then he took jazz fusion even further with the hugely successful Weather Report. And that was a Like a hit a hit like beyond jazz like in little rock world and that led him to working with everyone from Joni Mitchell to Steely Dan plus a lot of great solo albums if you want to listen to him solo we got a list of the albums you should listen to like Speak No Evil by Wayne Shorter Heavy Weather by Weather Report seven albums with Joni Mitchell he's the soloist on the Steely Dan track Asia the title track from their masterpiece Don Henley The End of the Innocents it goes on and on uh, Rico Browning sorry about this Sperling I, I joked I sent to Sperling the guy from The Creature from the Black Lagoon the guy in the suit the rubber suit in the water that guy died and I sent Sperling I forwarded immediately I didn't read it, and I said don't worry I'm not going to include the guy from the black the the suit guy from Black Lagoon turns out he's kind of interesting he died in 93 and yes this guy was in the rubber suit for the underwater scenes he didn't even do the land scenes with the creature but uh his name is Rico Browning R-I-C-O-U uh but it's interesting he did stunts in 20,000 leagues under the sea He joked that he played all the bad guys on the TV show Sea Hunt, uh, which was a TV show with Lloyd Bridges. He directed underwater sequences, including a fight in the Bond film Thunderball, another one for Never Say Never Again. Remember Caddyshack when the candy bar fell into the pool and they spoofed Jaws? Well, that was him too. But his biggest success... He was crazy about animals, and he would bring animals home all the time. His home was like a zoo, his son said. The neighborhood kids came over all the time, and he brought a dolphin back when he went on a trip to South America, and then he saw his kids in the living room watching Lassie and said, hey, why not do a show with a kid and a dolphin? Boom, Flipper. He created Flipper, co-created Flipper the movie, and then the TV series. So, interesting life, and finally, this is important to me. Christopher Fowler, the author, is dead at 69. He's a mystery writer, best known for the Bryant and May series, which if you love mysteries, dive right in. They're an eccentric duo who solve eccentric crimes beginning just after World War II and leading right up to pretty much today, and they're a treat. Uh, And he has a movie connection. He started a film marketing company earlier in his career, and he came up with the tagline for Ridley Scott's Alien, In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. So that's pretty cool. But he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer just as the pandemic forced lockdowns, which he calls spectacularly bad timing because it made it really hard for him to get the treatment that he needed. And he was an avid blogger right up to the end. He blogged right as long as he could. Then he said, all right, I'm going to go to Twitter. And he tweeted for a little bit and then he died. Uh, So it was it was very touching on his blog. He posted the last blog in January and it said it was when I realized I could not handle short staircases that my future became apparent. My muscles had wasted away. I suddenly looked like my grandfather. Physical deterioration accompanied by mental fog. As the illness increased its invasive speed, I could no longer keep my head clear enough to work. I needed the time I had left to try and finish a short story, but even that is now in danger of remaining unfinished. It's very hard to write now without falling asleep or forgetting what I was going to say. If there's something I really need to get out, I'll put it on Twitter. End quote. That's just, you know, heartbreaking. So it's, uh, he died on March 2nd. Uh, that's what his husband announced on Twitter after he had a few more posts in that format. So I guess that's life. You go from newspapers to blogs to Twitter to death.
0: I think that, uh, what was it, Birth Movies Death? Yes, exactly. The, the blog, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just want to know how Rico Brown, he brings a, how do you bring a dolphin home?
1: No, not Rico Brown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did it all the time. He was a major animal person. His home was not like lots of dogs. He had like crazy animals, like a zoo. So, you know, he had practice. And must have had a pool. Uh, <laughs> I imagine he had a pool. Yeah, I would say so.
0: <laughs> I hope so. But uh, you know what? Find out, uh, find out who's bringing dolphin home, dolphins home next week. And by dolphins, we mean Oscars, okay? <laughs> because we'll be around next week, uh, t- covering the Oscars, obviously. Uh, in one way, shape, or form, we'll be around. You know what? Make sure you subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, My- Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Anywhere you 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 pick up your podcast, subscribe to us. Spotify, of course. Uh, And I think uh, Apple Music as well. We're we're pretty much everywhere. Just subscribe to us. Please subscribe. You like me. You really like me. Um, You see an Oscar reference there, Michael. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know what? You can find that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com ways to call us 888-567-sand that's 888-567-7263 we're also on twitter at showbizsandboxes our handle and on facebook facebook.com/showbizsandbox the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT they can be found on their own website who is MGMT Dot com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's
1: sanders.senate.gov, the Bernie Sanders website. And if you heard me on my soapbox earlier, which will be cut out of the show, you'd understand why.
0: Ah, who says
1: it will be cut out of the show? Oh, it would be two hours long. And I'm not allowed to uh, curse on the air.
0: Oh, okay. That's never stopped you before, but... <laughs> Now, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage over there with uh, Uncle Bernie, uh, you know what? Why not head on over to MichaelGilts.com where all of his entertainment coverage is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.